Well, who's our guest today? Well, here's our guest. person has a whole book in the Old Testament. Our guest, ladies, it's for you. Esther. Keep having ladies going, when are you going to use, uh, invite a lady to the table? Well, today's that day, and I wish we could invite more, but some of the big characters, they end up being male. But uh, the book of Ruth, the book of Esther, they're there, and so uh, I decided to grab a hold of Esther, felt led to do that. And so we are going to look at the life of Esther, and um, if you don't know anything about the story of Esther, then I think you're in for a treat today, and you're going to learn some Old Testament uh, history, not only of the scriptures, but of the Jewish people and also how God uh, operates that you're going to be encouraged by in your own personal practical life today. Esther, that's a, a common picture of Esther. Actually, that's a picture I took out of a movie called uh, One Night uh, with the King. And I watched it this week with some of my family members and uh, it came out in 2006 and you can um, find it and watch it. I watched it off of YouTube actually. But um, Esther uh, was a Jewish girl, but she became a queen. And so Esther is known more as Queen Esther. And Queen Esther, um, she had her original Jewish name was Hadessa, and uh, she was then renamed Esther, and God led her to become queen of a Persian empire at the time. And so we just have this simple question today that we're going to look at. What would Esther share at a dinner conversation? What would Esther share at a dinner conversation? Now, in prior weeks, I've had maybe three or four kind of real nuggets of statements. But this story about Esther doesn't lead me to go there. There's one thing that I want us to grab from a conversation with Esther, but it's a pretty strong and bold thing when we look at her life. And we're going to land with that as time moves on as we walk through the story today. But Esther, I think, would be a very ordinary, common person to have around our table because she grew up um, in um, just a Jewish culture and she had no notoriety. She was actually an orphan. And God took her life and made her into a powerful tool in his hands to protect and redeem his people. So the picture on the left is like, oh, Esther, Queen Esther. But the picture on the right is more commonplace. And believe it or not, all of us, we can dress down and we're just common. As I often say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter what your title is or lack of title walking into this room. In the eyes of God, we're all human beings, and we have that in common today. All right? So the Old Testament storyline that we've been going through, we've been pulling a lot of these characters out. Where would you find Esther at? You would find Esther all the way over on the right. Her name's not listed there. But with Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, the rebuilding of the temple, but moving and trying to restore the Jewish people back into Israel after they had been... Um, taken away into captivity in Babylon, that's where you would find Esther. In fact, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, all three of those sort of go together. Um, the books go together. The individuals go together in what they did and taking the Jewish people who had been dispersed out of Israel into foreign territories, modern-day Iraq, and we'll see today with it also being Iran, then God brought them back 
uh, to Israel. All right. So Esther is a part of that situation right there. These are some of the things just to know heading into the story. The Israelites uh, went into Babylonian captivity, but now the Babylonian captivity are now under the Persian reign by uh, King uh, Xerxes. The account of Esther begins in 483 B.C., which is 37 years before Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. Xerxes' kingdom was expansive. It ranged from India to North America with, uh, with governors in 127 different providences. And so I have a map here for us to continue to get our context with what's going on. And this map uh, shows you the Middle East. You're com- uh, you become more familiar with the Middle East if you watch news a lot because that's where a lot of the activity is happening in our world, right? And so if you looked into the story of Esther, you would find that it was about this empire and what was going on. And so the Persians had taken over. The Medes and Persians had taken over at the time. And King Xerxes, uh, who was the son of Darius, he had a kingdom that reigned all the way from the left into the northern part of Africa, all the way to the right on that map, which touches down to India. And so when you look at the news today, you're seeing all that area still in play, still in controversy, still a lot of turmoil going on. We are not new to the challenges of this area. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning of time even. And uh, so the kingdom itself had its headquarters in Babylon, but there was a winter resort area that had become sort of the, the place the Xerxes now operated out of, a place called Susa. Can you see Susa there? It's down by that red line. Those red lines represented roads and routes and how they controlled the kingdom with their armies. And Susa today um, is the modern Iran city of uh, Shush. And so here's a picture of the modern city, uh, which still has some of uh, that type of character almost of what the, um, the city of Susa must have been like. But Susa was a very extravagant, incredibly glamorous kind of capital for that whole empire. In fact, they discovered a tablet that, that talked about all the different kinds of materials that were brought from far, far, far away lands, whether it was emeralds or cedars or whatever it was, to build this empire capital in Susa. And in Susa, King Xerxes had control of the whole empire 127 different providences, governors and leaders over that. And when he made a decree, that decree was taken out to all those governors and it was set in motion and activity uh, was at his beckon as to whatever was uh, going on. And so that's where the story is, um, background a little bit. And I figured one of the best things I can do with the story of Esther is just put up a simple slide that has some of the names of the characters on it and then begin to walk through this story. So the book of Esther has these characters. Xerxes was the Persian king. Vashti was his queen that ended up becoming vanished. We'll share that in a second. Esther was a Jewish orphan as an infant most likely, and her Jewish name, as I mentioned to you, was Hadassah. Mordecai was the older cousin who adopted Esther. We go back to that. Mordecai was the older uh, cousin who adopted Esther. Some people uh, think that it was her uncle, but Scripture is actually referring to uh, him being an older cousin. And so he took 
Hadassah into his home and raised her. Haman, who we'll find out a little bit later, was the main vizier or the executive officer to the king. And he becomes the villain, the bad guy. And the reason they did a movie out of this is because it makes for a great movie if you know the story, all right? And so I'm going to encourage you to take your scriptures, maybe take a, a newer translation like the New Living Translation or something, and sit down this week and read through the whole story. It just plays its way out really well. Or like I said, try to find that movie. Though with movies, you're like, okay, that was sort of added, and that's not necessarily true, but it gives you the picture of it. The reason I put up the city of Susa up there, the modern-day city in Iran, is because these things actually happened at a real site, and you can go there and touch the stones of the place. I did not understand why history was important when I was in school. It seemed like a lot of memorization to me and a lot of old things that didn't matter to me as a young boy and as a young adult even. But the older I get, I almost wish that I would have majored in history, even if I'm a pastor, because history repeats itself, as they often say, and you learn from history. And not only do you learn from the mistakes of history, let's not do that again, and hopefully they're going to learn some of those things as they're making decisions politically in the controversial places of our day, but you learn how God operates through history and what's going on. The book of Esther is a very unique book in this. It's in the Bible, but you do not find the name God or Lord in the whole book. In fact, that's why some people say, why is the book of Esther in the Bible? It doesn't say God or Lord, Jehovah or anything like that. Well, here's the reality. There's a lot of times that you and I live in our lives, and we wonder, where is God at? What's going on? God doesn't speak to you like, you know, hey, we, we looked at Abraham. We looked at Moses, right? We looked at Daniel, and it says, the Lord said. And sometimes you go, doesn't say anything to me. Even when I read scripture sometimes, don't hear anything from God. Well, here's the reality. Whether or not God seems real in your life, even this morning, God is in control and his plan is playing out. And this story, I believe, is about God and God's sovereignty and God's leadership and God using people, common ordinary people for his purposes, even amidst big political powers. But you see it through the eyes of just a common ordinary Jewish life and the turmoil of the Jewish people. And so if God seems distant from you this morning, then look inside of history. Look inside of maybe the bigger picture of your own life. Sit down and, and write your own chronicles. And sometimes you can start to see, oh, God was there, and God worked that way, and God worked this way. Because what happens in the book of Esther is we see God at work at a critical time and the nation, or in the people of Israel. Because if God wasn't at work through the things such as Esther today, we would not have a whole lineage that led up to Jesus Christ and our Savior, the one who we proclaimed and worshiped this morning as being alive. And so here's the story of the book of Esther, and we're going to walk through it a little bit piece by piece and try to put together how God's sovereignty works in the midst of of all activity of life. I'm going to begin by just encouraging, if you have your scriptures, to open them. I'm going to uh, jump here and there on a few things. But um, 
the story starts out this way. This is what happened in chapter 1. During the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. Time's moving along in history. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Here we are in a time where Persia has taken over, where Babylonian captivity was, they're in control all the way from Africa to India. 127 providences, tremendous amount of wealth in Susa. We have a king who, uh, well, you can make your own opinions of him as we walk through the story, but a king who ruled strongly, Xerxes. And Xerxes decided that he was going to have a six-month-long party to display the wealth, to display all the grandeur and the glory of the Persian Empire. And so he would invite people in and out, and for six months they partied on. And then they decided they were going to finish out with an extravagant week. And this extravagant week, there was food flowing, there was wine flowing, they were in the courtyards, they had cups made of gold of various kinds, the gardens were beautiful and all kinds of decor. And on the last day of the last week of the six-month party, King Xerxes, with all of his guys around, says, I think I want to show off my wife, the queen. And so he asked for his wife, the queen Vishta, to come and display herself before these men. Now, can you try to comprehend this? These men had been at things for a while. All right? Bunch of drunken men around a big courtyard. They're bellowing out boasts of this and that. Oh, there's a harem. There's concubines, other people around. And the king is so proud of his beautiful queen wife. Bring her on out. Let's have her give a display. Now, there's not particulars of this, but you can let your mind go in some places. And if you're Vishta, what are you thinking? Uh-uh, no way am I going out there and parading and dancing with my little crown on in a front of drunken, lustful men. So she says what to the king when the orders come to her? No, uh-uh, not that. Ain't doing it. Right? King didn't know what to do. What do you mean? She said no. You do not say no to the king. Now, you need to understand the culture of the day. It was a male-dominated culture, as evidence, right? And this was his trophy wife, and he wanted to display his trophy. And the women didn't say no. He was not looking good in front of all of the leaders. So he consulted the um, experts. Now, 
I don't know if you realize this. Sometimes it's referred to as it's, it's, um, that the Medes and the Persians, it's written in stone with like the Medes and the Persians. When there was a decree that was made in the Persian Empire, the Persian and Mede Empire, you could not revoke it. The king couldn't even revoke it. What it was is what it was to be. It needed to happen. Well, this is even more embarrassment. He just made it. A command. His wife didn't come. They saw. He's going, oh my gosh, this is not good. And they said, you know, this is terrible. This is terrible. They told him because now there's going to be a revolt of all the women disobeying their husbands and all the land and all the providence. It literally says that in scripture. All right. And so they decide that Vishta should be banished from the whole empire or from Susa. They figured that if we march around of here and they take her away, everybody and all the empire is going to say, whoa. And the women are going to say, whoa, we're going to respect and serve our husbands more. Now, where does that logic come from? But it was a male-dominated culture. Women were not given the light of day. Even um, that whole reality, I think, uh, shows even more why... Uh, Esther is such a prominent figure to be able to uphold and be endeared to her in her obedience before God and what happened and transpired. So Vishya is banished. They sort of solve that little turmoil. Um, a period of time later, King Xerxes is sitting around going, I don't know, I sort of miss Queen Vishya. They saw that he was sad. And they said, you know what you ought to do, King? You ought to get a bunch of virgins from the whole empire to come in here, and we're going to have a beauty contest. That's a great idea! A beauty contest with, with the best virgins in all the land, from North Africa to India. And this beauty contest, this was no simple thing, like, hey, bring them in, parade them, dress them up a little bit. They brought in the virgins from all these areas, and they um, put them in beauty school for a whole year. Now, men, if you think it takes a while for your wife maybe to get ready, just chill out there, all right? A whole year for these uh, virgins to go into not only uh, a beauty school, but probably etiquette school and class school, all that kind of stuff. And so um, what happens is then after that year, then they're brought to the king, and he's, he's going to make a decision. And, uh, and the king has one night. Uh, or one opportunity to be able to, uh, you know, make a decision on this one and the next one and the next one and the next one. So this is coming that's out there. Well, lo and behold, they show up at the house of Mordecai. And Mordecai has his young cousin that he's raised through the years, Hadessa, and they pick her. But before they come to pick her, he says to her, he says, if they come and they pick her, because he knew that she was beautiful. And he knew that she was smart. And he knew that she had an awful lot to offer somebody in a marriage. So he says, you can't go with that name or they'll know that you're Jewish. He says, let's go with the name Esther. So they go with the name Esther. And then he says to her, do not tell anybody that you're a Jew. You see, the Jews were there as surely as like back in Moses' day, right? They were not slaves in the empire, but they were seen as a certain sect or a kind of people. They had been dispersed throughout all that area after the captivity of Judah. And so they, here they are generations later. 
literally hundreds of years later, right? And the Jewish people are still identifiable as not only an ethnicity, they're identifiable in their religiosity um, of being able to to, uh, follow the one true God, Yahweh. So they come and they take Esther and they take her into uh, the courts. She becomes uh, in uh, one of the eunuchs. They had eunuchs that served there. And one of the eunuchs became endeared to who she was and gave her special favor to try to get her positioned in front of the whole pack, right? Try to get her further down the beauty contest than the others were. Well, the time comes for these women to be um, uh, interviewed, for these women to be more than interviewed. Uh, And they uh, were all hoping, you know, maybe they would out of the blue get to be queen. Well, lo and behold, by God's providence, I believe, as Scripture teaches, Esther is picked to become the queen. Esther's picked to become the queen. And so all looks pretty good. How cool is this? Mordecai was sort of proud of his, his uh, uh, adopted daughter, if you will, and was excited maybe about you know, how all that could orchestrate. But then the villain comes along, all right? And the villain comes along, and it's in chapter 3, um, that you find Haman. And Haman has this plot that uh, he comes up with um, where he wants to destroy the Jews. And he has reasons, most likely because he's just an arrogant person and a very evil man. And so he is identifying with the Jews and the Jews around there operating around. In fact, Mordecai, one of the stories that happened about him before this is that he was actually at the king's gate and he was hanging out and he overheard a couple people who wanted to assassinate the king. And so he got word back up through Esther and Esther told the king and the king's uh, had it all checked down, and lo and behold, these two people were trying to assassinate him. And so it was put down in the chronicles of uh, the kingdom that uh, he was um, saved from this assassination, and the Mordecai was the person who saved him from it. But along comes Haman, and, and he has no, he has no uh, not just interest, he, he has no good feelings at all about the Jewish people. And he wants to see them dismissed. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but if you study the background of Haman and where he came from, it says that Haman was an Agiite. Haman came out of a descendage, a lineage, hundreds of years after King Agag. And King Agag was of the Amalekites, and he was a nasty dude, right? And so there was some decisions that were made back when the Israelites took over the Amalekites that sort of left that lineage intact. And lo and behold, hundreds of years later, here's one from that lineage that comes back, and he still has ill will because of his heritage towards the Jewish people, and he is ready to decimate them. He wants to get rid of them. I think if you've been following the news stories of the last few weeks and um, such there there is conversation that there is a anti-semitic rising in our country and our world and that's just sad the evil and the bloodshed around the world is all sad and one nation pitted against another one people pitted against another people But I don't know about you. I had to take a few steps back 
the last couple of weeks is I just would see things that were highlighted, demonstrations around the world and stuff, and go, you know, friends, nothing ever changes, does it? History repeats itself. People angry and bitter towards another people. Ethnic cleansing is not beyond modern day. Not just the world, but even USA. Why? Because we still have this one foot in Adam in our sinful nature. And the devil hates human beings. Human beings are made in the image of God. And he will do whatever he can to destroy human beings. Even having them destroyed in the name of God. But God desires to be glorified amongst all people. A one true God. And he will continue whether it's protecting of a certain sect of people, but more importantly, a provision whereby he is preparing a place for all people who are followers of him to have a place of peace in an eternal world with him. God desires for the evil to be done, but somehow he's allowing the evil in our world to be used ultimately for his good. I don't fully understand it. You will never fully understand it either. But we live in a very difficult place in our world. Sometimes you sit around and go, how did those Germans do that? How did the Holocaust happen? Well, friends, how is it that someone like Haman just gets an edge on himself and then he goes and approaches the king and says, these people, they don't bow down to me and worship me and I think we need to get rid of these people. That's exactly what happened. Haman had aspirations, political aspirations. This Mordecai guy, he was sort of known as an influencer. And there was a decree that got put down that everybody sort of should bow to Haman, and Mordecai didn't. And so Haman, he goes to the king. And Haman wants to articulate to the king a concern that he has. Chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business." So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamamadadeth and the Agiite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. <laughs> he is so excited, Haman is. I got the signature ring. I got the power. I got the authority. I'm not going to do away just with Mordecai. I'm going to do with, away with all the Jews, all the children, all the women. And I'm going to do it throughout the whole, pro, all the providence, 127 of them. And so he goes to work laying out this decree that cannot be changed, that the Jews are wiped out. Now, we don't know from this scripture, most likely not. Xerxes did not know that's what his intent was. In fact, he doesn't say that they're Jewish. He says, there's just a certain group of people. They're not fitting in. They're not doing right and this and that. And, you know, it's dishonoring to you, king. Well, then, do something about it, Haman. And so he goes to work. 
And this decree gets put in writing and starts getting solicited by couriers out to all these provinces and in Susa, the city itself. So with that, I pick up the story as it relates to Esther in Esther chapter 4. In Esther chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, it says this, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth and ashes on and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. He went prominent place, sackcloth and ashes, was a way of identifying with death. And he sat there. And he started to cry out. And he started to pray. And he figured out what surely can be done in this situation. And so we pick it up with verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai. Now what's happening here is this. Mordecai sent notice to Esther about this decree. Because Esther was clueless about the king's business which would be common. She didn't know about it until she sees it from the messenger that brought her the situation. Verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal providences know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now, we need to explain this. Most of you came with your spouse today. That's great. I mean, if you have a spouse. Back then, just because she was the wife, she was the queen, doesn't mean that she was around that much. He had a whole harem. He had all these concubines. And so there was just some of this passing, this coming and going kind of deal that would happen, especially if he was about his business. And they were all getting uproars. They, they basically were looking at going to taking on the Greeks and those kinds of things. So there's a lot of business going on in the, in the king's uh, uh, quarters. So she was clueless about it. Mordecai lets her know. But then she says back to Mordecai by a carrier, listen, you don't understand what you're asking. You want me to go to the king? If you go to the king unannounced, the decree is you get killed. Now, she wasn't saying no. She was just wanting her uncle, her adopted father, Mordecai, to understand the serious consequences of what was being asked of her. And so she sends this word back. Then we find this moving on in chapter 4. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. This is great. This is the heart of the whole book of Esther in the story. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, Esther, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. Now, that's about as close as you get to to the word God being put in Esther. Mordecai is saying God will deliver his people. So he had this strong faith. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob carried down through the years that he was a part of. And he was informing her again, God is in control and he will um, be about uh, the deliverance and, and, and helping as he can. So 
she goes on here. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. He's saying, let's step back. Let's look at history. Let's look objectively about what's going on. And could it not be, he believes so, that the reason this young Jewish orphan girl had become queen of the whole Persian empire was for such a time as this, to stand in the gap and go to the king and say, do not, do not kill, slaughter, and annihilate my people. But she had yet to tell anybody she was a Jew. And she knew that if she approached the king without being commissioned, that her very life was at stake. Mordecai say, let's step back, let's look at the circumstances, all that's going on in life, could it be for such a time as this? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, verse 15 and 16, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And here's the other phrase I want to pull out for today. Here's Esther. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So Esther says, you understand, Mordecai, I understand. I believe it's for such a time as this. She says, I believe so too. I trust God. I trust God with my very life. She says, call everybody to prayer and fasting. So the call to prayer and fasting, them seeking their God, that he would deliver them and that would be favor upon Esther as she approached the throne and she went that direction. And that's indeed what began to happen. She approached the throne. He extended the scepter. What do you want, Esther? There was a delay on her part, say, I want you to meet with me for a banquet with Haman, just the three of us. And there were actually a couple banquets. She says, I don't want to tell you now. She says, I'll give you half the kingdom if you want half the kingdom. She says, I, I, I need the three of us to have a banquet. Well, sure, another reason to party. Haman, behind the scenes, was continuing to try to figure out what he was going to do with this situation. He did not like Mordecai. He did not like Mordecai at all. In fact, he decided he was going to approach the king directly to get a decree to kill Mordecai. You see, the, the decree to kill all the Jewish people had been set out several months ahead. In fact, I think the date was something like March the 7th of the next year. So the decree was going out that on that particular day, March 7th, all those people of the Jewish um, uh, identity were going to be killed. So there's a lot of time that's spaced between this. But he wanted to have Mordecai done away with earlier than that because he was just tired of the man. And so he was going to get ready to go to the king during this interlude between uh, when Esther first approached the king and when the banquet with the three of them was going to happen, and he was going to ask that Mordecai uh, be sentenced to die. In fact, he was so confident in this that Haman had prepared what's called the gallows, and it's a little confusing. It wasn't necessarily a hangman noose, uh, but it was a big spear, and they would impale the person and put them on the end of this huge pole. And it was 75 feet tall that he built this pole that he was going to impale Mordecai on to show everybody that he was a mean dude and that he was in charge. So he goes to the king, 
but the king had had a restless night of sleep the night before. The king asked someone to come in and read the chronicles of the history of the Persian Empire to him to help him fall asleep. Figured that would get him to fall asleep. (laughs) And as they're reading it, the story says that there is this Mordecai guy who saved the king from two assassins. And the king says to himself, to the services, did we ever reward that Mordecai guy? No, nothing was ever done for Mordecai. Haman comes walking in. I'm ready to do away with Mordecai. And he's thinking he's tough stuff. King asks Haman, well, Haman, let me ask you a question. What would you do for somebody who did something pleasing to the king? How would you honor them? And Haman's thinking, he's wanting to honor me. Oh, me, he's wanting to honor me. And he says, well, what's what I would do? I would get one of the king's horses, put the king's robe on him, parade him through the city, and declare, this is what the king does to someone who he is pleased with. King Xerxes looks at Haman and says, that's a good idea. Go get Mordecai and parade him through this whole city. Can you imagine the astonishment of Haman? Oh, my gosh. He goes and does it. Mordecai's life's saved in that moment. Circumstances abound all through that, even the circumstance of Mordecai being at the king's gate. And here is Haman, realizing that the tables are starting to turn against him. He goes to the banquet, thinking it's a privileged banquet, with Esther, with King Xerxes, and we pick it up in chapter 7. The king asks Esther what she would have. Then Queen Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor... I'm sorry, I jumped ahead too far. So the king, I'm in verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked her again, What is your petition? It will be given to you, even if up to half of the kingdom is granted. Okay, next verse. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. King steps out. Haman pleads for mercy from Esther. King comes back in. He sees Haman leaning on Esther, which is a no-no. And he says, would you even molest the queen in the presence of the palace? They told him, the messengers, that Mordecai was to have been killed by Haman, that Haman was going to impale him on a 75-foot-tall spear. The king says, you take Haman and stick him on that spear. Thus is the story how Haman came to his demise. But then Queen Esther, through Mordecai, who was then given a place of prominence in the whole empire as well, and was given the privilege to write a new decree, the Jewish people were saved. Mordecai, because you couldn't redo a decree, 
the decree that he wrote is that on that March 7th date, all Jews in all 127 provinces could do whatever they needed to do to kill, slaughter, and annihilate enemies who would attack them. Everyone got spooked. No one ended up touching the Jews. And enemies did get killed. Haman's sons got killed. Mordecai was given this place of prominence. Esther, already in that place of prominence, even gained greater prestige. And God saved the Jewish people from a holocaust in the 480-something B.C.s because Queen Esther was his tool to see his will be done. So what would Esther say? If she was sitting around our dinner table, I think she would pull out this phrase and have you keep this phrase with you as you go today. For such a time as this. For such a time as this. And maybe if she was to put it into some more elegant terms as it related to the story that unfolds and the message that's behind it, it would simply be her saying this to us around the table. A long life's journey, divine providence reigns over mere coincidence. When God is revered above all others and all fears. A long life's journey, divine providence reigns over mere coincidence when God is revered above all others and all fears. Friends, there are no random acts of tragedy that happen. God does not cause them to happen, but sometimes he allows them to happen. In his sovereignty, circumstances move forward, but he can use them to bring himself glory and to bring you deliverance in your own life. To whom great privilege has been given is also great responsibility. That's what Mordecai spoke into Esther's life. Would it not be for such a time as this that you were given this royal position? All of us in this room have been given positions of some prominence and influence in some place. It may not be at the level of a queen in a kingdom of 127 providences, but it may be over an individual's life, maybe a co-worker you're even battling with right now, maybe a family member that's become estranged and distanced. For such a time as this, you are in a place to be able to be used by God to beckon his purposes. And we need to be fair, careful that we sit down and count the costs because some of the things God's going to call us to do may even threaten our very life or our name or our prestige or our notoriety. That's why the other phrase I put up here is, if I perish, I perish. Are you at such a place in your commitment to serve God's purposes that you would say that? For such a time as this, yes, Lord. But then on the heels of that to say, if I perish, I will perish. Let me give you a few little captions that maybe you wrestle with. Will I, if I'm obedient to God and I play my part and do what he's asked me to do, if I look at this next year, will I lose my health? Will I lose a relationship? Will I keep my job? Will investments collapse? Will I run out of money? Will I get cancer? Will tragedy strike my family? Children disappoint me. Maybe others ridicule my faith. 
What if my plans come to nothing? What if my dreams are turned to ashes? What if I lose spiritual impact? What if this next year I would face death? And Esther would just sit around the table and say, Fear not. Fear not. If you perish, you perish. But do what God has set before you and ordained for you to walk into. I close with just a brief story of a friend of mine named Don Pittman. In 2006, eight years ago this very day, I was in a hospital room with my friend Don Pittman who had been sent out by our church to plant another church on the other side of town seven, eight years prior to that even. Don contracted a deadly cancer, multiple myeloma. It's of the bone marrow. There is no cure. It's life-threatening. He was told seven years prior to that that he would never walk out of the hospital maybe. He defied the odds, and for seven years he fought off that multiple myeloma cancer until it finally took his life. I remember talking to Don once, and I said, Don, why are you still trying to build this church? And he just simply said to me, if my life's being taken from me, if God does not heal me from this, then what better thing to do with my life for such a time as this than to build a body of people for the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody take their last breath. I was with the family, some other church members. We were singing the song. It's as vivid as if it happened last week. We were singing the song, Great is the Lord. It was his favorite song. He was my age. He had four kids, just like I have four kids. And I saw him persevere. He didn't only survive through those years. He thrived doing the will of God and fearing not. He was actually able to speak on Easter Sunday of that year. He died when he wasn't even supposed to be anywhere near a church or a pulpit. And one of the things he said was never settle. Never settle for anything less than God's purposes and best in your life no matter what it takes. And so I honor Don Pittman and his family today. Because when you see someone taken out from you like that, and I've seen others as well, even younger, you say, God, why am I still here? Why do I get this privilege? Why do I get to do this? Don Pittman is with the presence of the Lord Jesus today. All of us in this room at some point will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus as well. I want to ask you the simple question that comes from the book of Esther. What is it for such a time as this that God's calling you to be obedient to?